Strange Stories UK here again. Uh, this is Series 2, Episode 7. As I record this, uh, the case is still at court. I'll wait until the end of the court case until I post the podcast and we'll put on the result of the court case and any other information that may come to light. Anyhow, I'm calling this one the Abdul Degay's uh, story, Extremism and Death in Brighton. Tuesday, the 5th of November, 2019. Hove Crown Court, Court 2. The trial starts of Daniel MacLeod, aged 36, a labourer and drug dealer of Gypsy Road, Lambeth, London, but with flats in Crawley and Brighton. And his co-accused, Stephen Raymond Burns, aged 55, drug dealer of Lennox Street, Brighton. They're on a murder charge, the murder of Abdul Dahez, aged 22, of Brighton, stabbed to death in a drug deal argument at Hanover Court near Elm Grove, just off the Lewis Road in Brighton. The trial is expected to finish during the first week of December 2019. Well, Abdul Nagay's family originally came from Tripoli in Libya. They came to the UK after facing persecution for their political views from the then ruling Gaddafi, after their father was executed by the Gaddafi regime for his political views and his work as a union organiser during 1980. Gaddafi was a dictator and his behaviour was that often erratic that led many people to conclude that he was not mentally sound. Many of his policies and actions were contradictory. Relations with the UK were poor as Libya was responsible for terrorism offences and supplying the IRA with weapons. The UK would grant the enemies of Gaddafi asylum from Libya with the idea that if these would return to Libya one day, after Gaddafi, there would be goodwill towards the UK in a post-Gaddafi world. The Degay's family were given political asylum after claiming refugee status after arriving in groups during 1985 and 1986. They were said to have been brought up in a secular household. The family returned to Libya in 2006 and the mother then moved to the Emirates. A son, Abu Baker Degas, and his wife, Anas Abu Seyon, and the children arrived back in Britain in 2008. They were housed at Saltdean at Arundel Drive East, which is part of the coastal urban sprawl to the east of Brighton. Anas Abu Sayan married Abu Bakr. She was a pharmacy graduate and his cousin. They married in December 1991. The Degay's family always kept in contact with their extended family in Libya after they moved to the UK, and they often returned to Libya for holidays, suggesting that their persecution wasn't too severe. Some members of the family, who were given British citizenship, moved back to Libya in the late 1990s. Members of the Dakes family would fight against Gaddafi in the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011. 
Abu Bakr's brother, Omar, also moved to Salt Dean and applied for British citizenship after claiming political asylum. He studied law at the University of Wolverhampton, where he became a practising Muslim. He wanted to become a human rights lawyer. Omar later moved to Pakistan and then to Afghanistan, where he married an Afghan woman. It's unclear where what Omar, Omar was doing in Afghanistan, but he was imprisoned for six years at Guadalajara Bay detention uh, camp as a jihadist, where he was said to have been tortured and lost an eye. The British government intervened to have him released in August 2007, and he received a reported one million pounds in compensation. When Omar Nagais returned to Saltdean, there was some local disquiet and what was seen as an inmate of Guatamano returning. It was asked of Omar as to what he was doing in Afghanistan during the war on terror. It was argued that it was too difficult to prove terrorist charges against people living in countries such as Afghanistan where he may have had terrorist affiliations. Certainly the circumstantial evidence against Omar was strong. He lived in Afghanistan when Al-Qaeda ruled there, and later when Al-Qaeda were forced out of Afghanistan and moved to Pakistan, Omar did the same. It is difficult to get information against Al-Qaeda cells, as they are often compartmentalised, each involving only a few individuals. They are very difficult to penetrate, it's difficult to obtain evidence of wrongdoing. There are the practical problems of proving a case against terrorists held at prisons thousands of miles away from where they've been captured. And soldiers, in contrast to police, cannot be expected to act as evidence collectors. Charges are often dropped, or cases dismissed, to protect sensitive information. Having said that, there's little doubt that some innocent people may have been arrested and detained during the War on Terror. Omar claimed to have been arrested by bounty hunters in Pakistan and sold to American forces. There, the Americans mistook him for another insurgent. Omar said that when he returned to the UK, the whole country seemed to have changed. The surveillance, the Islamophobia, control orders, secret evidence, people under curfews being unable to leave their houses. The neighbourhood seemed to have changed also. Thugs and mobs in the street, kids binge drinking and stealing. Omar felt his family were targeted by racist teenagers who threw stones and bottles at their house. This stopped rather abruptly after a community meeting and media coverage and after the police installed CCTV at the family home. <coughs> Nevertheless, Omar stayed in Brighton, which he said was a lovely place to live. He remarried and now works for Reprieve, a human rights organisation that campaigned to get him released from Guatamano. Where... For some people, doubts about Omar still linger. There are a number of internet postings that state Omar Dekaiz was a member of the Libyan Al-Qaeda. Postings presumably made by his extended family, boasting about his role. A social service report later said that Omar encouraged his nephews to fight for Islam in Syria and gave them the money that they needed to do so. The Decay's family suffered from a whispering campaign by some members of their community. It was said they were terrorist sympathisers, 
in Abu Bakr preached against Western lifestyle at a mosque in Brighton, where he was a senior member. The Al-Quds Mosque in Brighton, um, I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation, it's spelt A-L-Q-U-D-S, I'm calling it Al-Quds. Anyway, the mosque had a history of radicalisation. Uh, radicalization. In 1986, Abu Hamza, who was then known as Mustafa Kamal, moved to Brighton as a student and stayed at the mosque. While there, he joined with a group of Algerians who wanted an Islamic state in North Africa. Hamza started a study group that became so extreme that the imam at the time, a Dr Abu Jali Sajid, reported the matter to the police. The police took no action. Hamza moved back to London and took over Finsbury Park Mosque, where he became a hate preacher. Later he was jailed for inciting violence and is now in an American jail for life, with no possibility of parole. During the 1990s, the leader of the mosque, Dr Sajid, was allegedly forced out by Abu Bakr Dagaiz, who preached a more radical pro-Sunni version of Islam, and his supporters. Dr Abu Jali Sajad was the leading imam then, and he was a government advisor on Islam. But as I say, he was forced out of the mosque. During 2006, Abu Dagaiz gave his views to an undercover Times journalist, saying that Tony Blair was a legitimate target for attack. He later said that he meant political attack. Abu Bakr certainly held strong views, telling an Irish publication in 2007 that the war on terror is illegal and immoral, and that the UK and the USA are using state terrorism as they invade and murder. Until there's justice for Palestine, there will never be peace in the Middle East. It's our job to fight for justice. Non-European citizens are second-class citizens. The United Nations are useless. Such views, of course, are held by many in the UK, but I include these here to give some idea of what uh, Abu Bakr de Gaze believed in. The police raided the Al-Quds Mosque and found extremist literature. They also said that they suspected that some people attending the mosque was suspected of having fought as mercenaries abroad. The Dekeys family did not get on well with all Muslims in Brighton. The sons of Abu Bakr were thought of as troublemakers, and a lot of the Muslim community did not want to mix with them. The Dekeys boys were known locally as the, as the Abdullah brothers. Abdul Degaz had an elder brother, Amir, and a twin brother, Abdullah, and two younger brothers, Jaffa and Mohammed. Abdul and his twin attended Long Hill School, which didn't have a particularly good reputation at the time. Bog-standard comp, with lots of low-level disruption during lessons. Most of the students were from a white British background, but the Dehays children seemed to have made lots of friends, and the school, many came from deprived backgrounds. School friends at the time said the brothers never talked about religion and often bunked lessons. The Degay's family had complained about racist behaviour from some neighbours, who they said belonged to extreme right-wing groups such as the National Front, and they were targeting Muslims who they thought may have had terrorist links. 
The, tar- the, the car of the Decays had a windscreen smashed in September 2009, which they claim was a targeted attack because of the family's association with Omar. Salt Dean, in common with many other areas in the UK, has areas of deprivation. They're quite tough areas to live. Any perceived differences can be used as a reason for some bullies to find fault and a reason to persecute. In the climate of the war on terror, so prominent in the media, it's likely that the the, the Gay's brothers were picked on by some youths in the area where they lived. But it's also clear that they were popular with many others and they seemed to have a wide spectrum of friends. Around this time, Abdul and his twin brother were suspended from school for violent behaviour, and they were involved in other violent incidences in the, in the area. The Decay's family claimed that they were suffering from racism. The police investigated and found insufficient evidence to make any charges against anyone. March 2010. The Decay's twins told social workers they felt that the police were racist and they had not arrested those that had felt they had felt had been racist against them. The father told police that his sons were being radicalised by the lack of police activity about their complaints. As a response, Sussex police arranged for non-white police officers to meet with the Decay's boys and tell, and tell them what they were feeling and how they felt they'd been unfairly dealt with. But again, the police did not find sufficient grounds to take any action against anyone. Other problems were beginning to become evident, as an allegations were made to the police that, that the father, Abu Bakr, had a violent temper and had been terrorising his family. A few weeks later, a third party con- uh, contacted a charity concerned for the safety of the family. Social services investigated claims that Abu Bakr had whipped his sons with electrical cables. Abu Bakr made the boys get up early in the morning to study the Quran and would punish them if he felt that they were not paying sufficient attention. Social services said that the boys had injuries and bruising. The boys had also thought to have suffered emotional abuse and were showing symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Abu Bakr denied these claims. On the 23rd of November 2010, at a child protection hearing, Social services concluded that the four Dehays boys were subject to actual emotional and physical harm. The father was arrested and released, and was given bail conditions not to visit the family home, which he just ignored. The boys later retracted their statements against their father. They later told police that their father had dictated them the letters which they were right, which were the, they were to write in order to withdraw support for prosecution against him. Abu Bakr denied any acts of violence against his family, saying that any allegations were part of a racist vendetta against him. Abu Bakr could be quite charming in order to get his way, but he was also very controlling. In February 2011, Anas fled her husband, taking her four sons to emergency accommodation in Brighton, in Preston Drove. Housing in Brighton is in very short supply. Anyone wanting housing help from the council has to show that they have lived in the city for the previous five years. Aness was not happy with the accommodation offered, which was a Victorian masonette near the popular area of Preston Park. She complained that it was damp and draughty. 
Being in a larger urban area than Salt Dean, the brothers were able to exploit the fact that they were unknown and less visible and had a much wider field in which they could cause mischief. And S later moved with her children to Queen's Park area of Brighton. The elder boy, Amir, concentrated on his studies. But during the spring of 2011, the twins were getting out of control, getting involved in street brawls, posting their face on their Facebook sites weapons which they were using. As they became part of a street and a Brighton street gang that targeted foreign students for their mobile phones and whatever else they could rob. The Lewis Road and the London Road became the gang's main area of activity, but they would also shoplift in the city centre. The decayed boys were becoming a big problem for the police and social services. The police at the time considered that the three younger boys as a one-family crime wave. There was an exclusion notice put on the twins' movement, banning them from the Brighton city centre, which was, regard, which was regularly broken. The boys ignored the, the banning movement. From the age of 13, Abdul had been going to juvenile court for violent conduct and was to build up a long criminal record of low-level petty and violent crime. Meanwhile, the elder brother, Amir, was not involved in the gang culture, he was best friends with Ibrahim Kamara, who arrived in the UK with his mother from Sierra Leone. They had met at the Al Quds Mosque at Dyke Road in Brighton, where Abu Bakr was the senior figure. Allegations had been made to the police in 1997 that Abu Bakr had been preaching in a manner that might incite racial unrest and reflected strong Al Qaeda sympathies. It's not known if this had any great impact on Amir. A social service report later said that Amir had radicalised his friend Ibrahim Kamara, who considers himself a rapper, and he was said to have suffered from racial abuse, but used it as a subject for his rapping and for writing plays that he wrote, often using headlines from the tabloid newspapers as inspiration. Ibrahim's mother was called Kahija. She ran a charity shop, Strive in the Name of Allah, in the Lewis Road, Brighton. She said that her son's conversion happened very fast. Kahija was a single mother of four, and she was worried about the effect that Ibrahim was having on her younger sons, and she told him to leave the house. She spoke of the brutal way that her younger sons found out that Ibrahim was dead when <clears throat> Yaffa Dagais posted a photo on the Facebook saying, Congratulations, your brother has become a Sahid, a martyr, this morning. Friends of Ibrahim also com commented on how quickly he had become radicalised. And as Degayis was losing control at her home, as her sons were inviting gang members to stay at the house. Often the gang members were boys that they had known at Longhill School, who had moved a few miles to Brighton. Neighbours often complained about disturbances at the home. The three younger boys were supposed to be attended Long Hill School, but rarely attended. Staff at the school reported that they were unwilling to confront the boys, as they often claimed racism. Meanwhile, they were thought to be bullying classmates and having confrontations with other groups of youths in the city. They seemed to aspire to a gangster lifestyle. 
The younger brother, Jaffa, had transferred to Van Dien's school, a school with a good reputation, near to where he lived at Preston Park. The school were unwilling to take on the twins. However, Jaffa became involved in the twins' gang activity and found it difficult to apply himself and his attendance plummeted. It fell to 59%, no doubt as a result of chaotic home circumstances. Jaffa was eventually transferred to Brighton's pupil referral unit for violent behaviour. In a pupil referral unit, it's difficult to learn and there's not the same resources or provisions as in a mainstream school. And as a result, Jaffa's academic results suffered. During the summer of 2012, Jaffa's behaviour caused concern and he was arrested among, along with his twin brothers for assaulting and robbing foreign students. Amir tried to help Jaffa, encouraging him to attend the mosque, but police records show that he was becoming a prolific offender. During May 2012, police recorded 15 incidents with the Decay's brothers. The twins tried to employ the old Cray, twic, cray, the, the old cray twins trick, trying to evade prosecution by exploiting the fact that neither the police or their victims could tell them apart. Sunday of the 16th of September 2012. The police received reports of a teenager staggering around the level, a small park and skate park near the confluence of London and Lewis Roads in Brighton, in the town centre. 14-year-old Jaffa was drunk and aggressively shouting sexist abuse to girls and threatening passerbys with the revenge of Allah. When a crowd of teenagers circled him, puzzled by his behaviour, he said, do what you want to me, but see what happens when Judgment Day comes. You will all go to hell. Jaffa was monitored, but didn't give any further signs of radicalisation. During January 2013, the boy's father, Abu Bakr, travelled in an aid convoy from Brighton to northern Syria. At the time, such convoys were uncontroversial. The following month, staff at Vindeen School noticed one of Jaffa's friends taking non-Muslim boys to the prayer room. When confronted, he said that he was converting them to the Muslim faith and teaching them how to pray, and that they were going to attend the Al-Quds Mosque. He also showed the teacher anti-Jewish footage on his mobile phone. When the teacher reported this to the council community safety team, they said they were aware, but didn't have any concerns. Meanwhile, Ibrahim's mother remembers her son talking to her about the situation in Syria, and during, <clears throat> that was during August 2013. Ibrahim and Amir spent a lot of time at the gym getting fit and praying at the mosque. Amir was also displaying anti-Western beliefs, and Jaffa, who had spent August in Libya visiting relatives, came back with anti-American views, saying that all Americans were terrorists. During September 2013, the Sussex police decided to stop an initiative called Operation Blower, which was to dismantle gangs of youths in Brighton, as the foreign students had left at the end of the summer. The police had not noticed any Islamic radicalisation. At the same time, the Social Services Troublesome Families Scheme ceased its work with the Decay's family, as they had made little progress and decided to focus elsewhere. On the 15th of October 2013, 
the elder, the gay's brother, Amir, left Brighton for Syria. It was said that he'd been influenced during the August over news reports when Assad's forces fired chemical rockets into the suburbs of Damascus. Amir said that he saw the chance in Syria to help and a chance to remove Assad's secular Ba'athism regime. Amir did not want to be the person standing on the sideline in watching while Muslims were being attacked. It is also claimed that Amir was embarrassed by the criminal elements in his own family. He had battled against his younger brother's behaviours. He wanted to prove himself that he was a pure soul, and the way to do this was to fight on behalf of his ideas of Islam. The group that Amir joined were the Al-Nusra Front, who were linked to Al-Qaeda, one of the most militant groups favouring suicide bombings. It was thought to be up to 10,000 strong, <clears throat> made up mainly of foreign fighters such as Amir. Al-Nusra supported the movement called Al-Qaeda, who wanted an end end any non-Islamic influences in Muslim countries. They wanted a single caliphate, which was ruled by a caliph, to implement a strict Islamic views and Sharia law. Al-Qaeda think that a Jewish-Christian alliance wants to destroy Islam. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are competing doctrines. Al-Qaeda want Islamic world domination. ISIS want to establish a pure Islamic caliphate and slowly spread the message of Islam to the rest of the world. A bit like after the Russian Revolution, when Trotsky wanted world revolution and Stalin wanted revolution in Russia. Both groups claimed that they knew what was best for the future Islamic world. All supporters of Islamic fundamentalization hate Ba'athism as practiced in Syria and Iraq, which they see as a secular, non-religious Arab socialism, which is anti-Islam. Many Islamic supporters hate Assad, who they feel double-crossed and tricked them in the past. Amir sent messages to his brothers, saying that the food and accommodation was not as bad as he had been expecting, and that he was having a wonderful time, and he met like-minded people who shared his vision. He was in northern Syria fighting with Jabhat al-Nusra, the Syrian affiliate of al-Qaeda, which was the most powerful Islamic group fighting Assad at the time. Amos said that, this, that his Muslim brothers were part of something bigger, trying to bring back Islam in justice to the land of the Muslims. Amir had posted on Facebook his views. He comes across as thoughtful, but not confronting Islamic-inspired terrorism saying that ISIS executions that had been posted on social media had been staged by those who were fighting against Islam, trying to provoke hate against Muslims and making people scared of Islam in order to support a war against Muslim countries. Amir thought that it was false news. It was false the reports of the killings of Christians, Jews and Shia Muslims. But he did not say if he thought it was wrong to murder those who did not agree with his views including, supposedly, Shia Muslims. Social workers in Brighton had heard that Amir had travelled to either Libya or Turkey on a humanitarian mission. The police were contacted, who in turn advised prevent officials, the government organisation to prevent radicalism, of any emerging risks that may impact on Amir's brothers as a result of his travels. 
On the 3rd of December 2013, police discovered a Facebook account registered in Libya that was linked to Jaffa Decays, called the Youth Empowerment Society Southeastern Division for Islam. It contained a web link with photographs of boxing apparatus, labelled the Brothers Gym, which was identified as a gym at Al-Quds Mosque, the father's mosque in Brighton. There were also photographs of balaclavered men in the desert and the black flag of jihad. The mosque's gym was not investigated by the police, who thought it was linked to criminality rather than radicalisation. Vardin's school had concerns over some pupils being susceptible to radicalisation, and the Brighton Youth Offending Service had concerns over the Decay's brothers. News reports later said that a former Guatemalan Bay detainee and Libyan national, who was paid a million pound in compensation by UK taxpayer, gave some of the money to his teenage jihadists, who later died as a result of terrorism in Syria. Omar Dekays paid the money to two of his nephews, Abdullah Dekays, 18, and Jaffa, 17, to encourage them to attend the Brighton gym behind the mosque where a network of radicalised Muslims met. On the 26th of January 2014, Abdullah and Jaffa Dekays and Amir's friend Ibrahim travelled to Luton Airport and they travelled on £59 one-way direct flight to Istanbul the gateway city to the Syrian front lines. This was despite UK border controls being on strict alert for young males travelling to Turkey, aware that 500 Britons had already thought to have travelled to Syria to fight. It later emerged that counter-terrorism officers had been watching the family, but the boys still managed to get to their destination. Abdullah, Jaffa and Ibrahim caught an overnight bus to Antaka on the Syrian border and across the Bab al-Hawa crossing in northern Syria into territory held by Jabhat al-Nusra, who captured it from the Free Syrian Army during the previous month. They had to prove that they spoke Arabic and that Amir could vouch for them, which of course he did. Meanwhile, there was something of a panic in Brighton, where social services and police were stunned that local teenagers had gone to fight in Syria. The police were getting reports from parents who were concerned about their children, who had been friends with the De Hayes brothers, converting them to Islam and going to Syria. There had been another young man, Mohammed Khan, aged 22, had also left Brighton to fight in Syria. He was part of the Bengali community in Brighton, but he was unconnected to the De Hayes. Sussex police identified a group of 20 young people, 13 of whom were under 18 years of age, who they thought may try to travel to Syria. Many of them had been pupils at Longhill and Vardin schools, and had been part of the gang who'd stayed with the Hayes house near Preston Park. A source familiar with the case said the extremism was like contagion among a group of friends. Brighton police and council chiefs held secret meetings in early 2014 to discuss the possibility of a terror attack from radicalised youngsters in the Brighton area. Brighton was put on the register of areas requiring extra support under the government's counter-extremism strategy. It was thought that those youths that had been thought to have been radicalised had been immersed in a culture of delinquency that evolved into extremism, 
partly caused by the influence of the Decay's family, who in turn, it was thought that racism and police indifference had accelerated their radicalism. It posed a difficult question about integration in, integration in, in, in Britain. If multiculturalism was faltering in Brighton, one of the UK's most liberal cities, then the future for the rest of the country did not look promising. Meanwhile, in Syria, during April 2014, Jaffa, Abdullah and Ibrahim had finished their intensive combat training and were deployed into the battle area. On the 14th of April 2014, Abdullah Dehez was killed by a sniper while chasing retreating Syrian forces near the resort town of Qasab in northwest Syria. His father publicly called him a martyr who had died fighting the dictator Basha al-Assad. In, in June 2014, Abdul Dehez was remanded in Lewis prison after attacking a couple with a knuckle duster in Brighton. September 2014, in Syria's Idlib province, Ibrahim Kamara was killed by an American cruise missile strike on an Al-Qaeda stronghold. October 2014, Jaffa was shot and killed by Syrian government troops in a close-range firefight in the ruins of Idlib. Amir had earlier been wounded in the stomach, but had recovered. During November 2014, leaders of the two Brighton mosques, the police, the council, officials and counter-terrorism officers launched an awareness campaign in an attempt to stop more Brighton residents leaving for Syria. A serious case review tried to ascertain reasons for five men leaving Brighton to fight in a foreign war, but perhaps the best explanation came from a family friend, Jackie Chase, who said that she felt that the boys went to Syria because they wanted brotherhood. They felt excluded. They were unhappy. They didn't know where they were going here, in Sussex. They wanted excitement, and they wanted to prove themselves as pure Muslims. There was another train of thought which argued that for many that come from certain parts of the world, they don't need radicalisation because they're already radical as a result of their upbringing. Abu Bakr's Dagais brought up his sons into a way of thinking that in going to Syria they were going to prove themselves to him. Other comments in the local newspapers made the point that in some countries in the Middle East, Jews and Shia Muslims are referred to as monkeys and Christians as infidels, and some people coming to settle in Europe find it difficult to change their views easily and resent the fact that they have to live in a non-Muslim country. Meanwhile, Amir was still posting on Facebook and YouTube, the Guardian newspaper making contact with him. He became friends with Mark Townsend, the, the journalist for The Guardian. They made a video, which is still available on YouTube. In the video, Amir come, claims to feel content at having left behind the materialism in the soullessness of secular society. He felt that he belonged to a Syrian battlefield and he wanted to die fighting for Islam. He said that if he was in Brighton living a normal life, in having a normal job, he'd be asking himself, what am I doing? What's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of life? Amir's father said that he'd come to see Amir to try to persuade him to return to Brighton. But Amir said he would not be returning, saying that although he missed Brighton Beach, it was no longer home. And in any case, Amir would, have to, would be detained if he tried to enter the UK. Back in Brighton, 
Abdul Dehaiz was involved in a number of low-level crimes. For example, in 2015, he was found guilty of being in possession of ecstasy after being refused entry to the Shakedown Festival in Brighton for being drunk and disorderly. He was fined and paid costs. In 2016, Abdul, who was now almost 20 years of age, was found guilty of drug dealing in Shoreham at Worthing Crown Court, just along the coast from Brighton. He regularly breached the court conditions that were put upon him. March 2017, Abdul Ghaz pleaded guilty to an affray that he committed while celebrating his 20th birthday at Brighton Crown Court. The actual offence taking place in April 2016. He was one of four men who used violence against shopkeeper in, a Preston, in Preston Road, Brighton. Abdul was sent to a young offenders institution for 21 days after turning up late twice to his hearing, which was a breach of bail conditions, which meant that he would spend his 21st birthday behind bars. The judge, Janet Wallicourt, said of Abdul Dukhaz, It may be stupidity, but it's arrogance. He doesn't take any of this seriously. It's two fingers up to the whole system. Other members of the gang that were sentenced were Oliver Pierce aged 25 at Brighton, and Leighton Richards, aged 22 at Brighton, and Jack Berry of Eltham, London. August 2017, Abdul Gahaz was convicted after pleading guilty for supplying Class A and B drugs. He was living at Chadbourne Close in Brighton with his mother and siblings. He'd been caught with a range of drugs including cocaine and ketamine. His mother attended the court and shouted out during the trial that her family had been the victims of long-running racial abuse and that gangs had been after him. On a video link from Lewis Prison, Abdul asked his mother to stop. Abdul was to receive a mental health evaluation before he was sentenced. The court heard that Abdul the Hayes had spent had 12 previous drug convictions relating to 24 offences. He was jailed for two years. In April 2018, the youngest of Hayes' brother was in court for drug dealing. He was sentenced to four years for three separate offences. It seems that Mohammed had been caught a number of times with quantities of drugs that indicated supply, and he had breached a suspended sentence. He had also been caught in possession with money that came from drug dealing. When the case was reported in the local newspaper, the Brighton Argus, there was comments from those that knew the Hayes' family. One gave a message to the mother. I'll tell you what's not fair, love, and that's that you've bred five monster sons, one still fighting in Syria, two and three killed fighting in Syria, four, a menace to society and the residents of Brighton and Hove, two years is nowhere near long enough. Oh, and last but not least, number five, your baby boy is in breach of a suspended sentence. Another message made the point that it was accepted that the family had a, had a hard time from racists, but it wasn't an excuse to take it out on everybody. Some, in calling themselves Double Diamond 74, wrote that they had seen the twins acting in a racist manner towards other members, other, others, talking about mugging the next white pig scum to leave the club, and that the family hid behind race, religion, racism and mental health issues. Another letter sent to the local newspaper said that the writer felt sorry for the mother being married to a bigoted bully, being beaten to the ground at times and losing sons to violent deaths. Abu Bakr is a violent bully who brought up his children to hate Western culture, despite living here and taking full advantage of it.
He bullied his wife and her brother, and he threatened to have her shot if she did, didn't drop a case against him for assaulting her. He was taken to court for attacking a worshipper at his own mosque, and refused to stand in the court, signing his Muslim religion as the reason why he didn't have to stand. His family have to reap what he himself has sown. He is a blight on the reputations of all peaceful Muslims who live and work here. There are many messages along these lines, and very few supporting the actions of the family. In, in fact, none. Abu Bakr was eventually jailed for 18 months in August 2018 after being found guilty of attempting to intimidate his wife in a court case against him. He was charged with assaulting his wife, Anas Abunsayan, who claimed that her husband had pushed her face in a carpet and pushed his fingers up her nose in an attempt to remove jinns or evil spirits from her body. Abu Bakr had been warned not to contact his wife as a condition of his bail, but he contacted his wife's brother saying that she should leave the country and he would have a shot if she did not comply. Abu Bakr was found guilty at Blackfriars Court in London. The case was moved from Brighton so that the jury would not be aware of the notorious family background. Abu Bakr had refused to stand for the court during his trial. The judge told him, You appear rather arrogant and have no respect for the secular nature of our laws. You have refused to stand with the court, opening and closing. This does not insult me, but insult, insults our proud legal system. Abu Bakr told the court that his wife had been mentally unwell since 1996 and blamed him for the death of his sons and for introducing them to cannabis. She wanted revenge against him. Saturday, the 16th of February, 2019. Abdul Bakr was stabbed just before 9.30pm and died from his wounds in Sussex County Hospital on the Sunday morning. His father, Abu Bakr, said that Abdul was very popular with his friends he loved Brighton and was a cheerful guy. Two men were held for his murder, Daniel MacLeod and Stephen Burns. The residents that lived near the stabbing faced roadblocks and had to be escorted to their places of residence while trying to return to their homes. It caused some concern from people worried that a murder had taken place so close to where they lived. The road was closed while police investigated and buses had to take a diversion. On Sunday the 17th, a 26-year-old man from Brighton handed himself into the main police station at Brighton, at John Street. Colby Bodrick was unemployed, a petty thief and a drug dealer who was with Abdul at the night of the stabbing. Colby, a well-built young man with unimpressive tattoos, was local to the area and seemed terrified over the events of the stabbing. Colby was held overnight and gave the names of people he thought were involved in the death of Abdul. One of the reasons that Colby was reluctant to contact the police was because he was disqualified from driving, a ban which he ignored as he drove Abdul around Brighton. The trial into the murder of Abdul, of Abdul Dagez started on the 5th of November 2019 at Hove Crown Court. The judge was Mrs Justice Parmajitkur Shima Grubb. Adam Feast was the main prosecution barrister and Joseph Henry was defending Daniel MacLeod. Stephen Burns was accused of assisting MacLeod. The jury was told that the attack happened at Hanover Court where Abdul suffered eight stab wounds. 
Abdul was able to leave the scene with his friend Colby in a car, but Abdul collapsed over Colby while he was trying to drive away, causing him to crash the car. Residents who witnessed the crash said that Colby, who was the driver, was clearly distressed and agitated. He told those watching that his friend had been stabbed. He told Abdul, who was slumped on the passenger seat, to get the fuck out of the car. Witnesses said that it seemed that Colby was having a psychotic episode. Abdul was breathing heavily and making funny noises. There was a great deal of blood and he soon became unresponsive. Colby Bodrick then ran away from the scene before the police arrived. Colby later phoned the police and said he would come and see them after he'd got his sorted his head out. He attended the police station with his father on the Sunday. Initially treated as a suspect, he was later recognised as a witness. There was a break in the court case during the first day of the trial when a fire alarm went off and everybody, including the defendants and witnesses, had to go outside to the meeting points. It's quite amusing to see the defendant, Stephen Burns, who was on crutches, trying to duck behind concrete pillars to avoid the media who were trying to take his photograph. In Ab- Abu Bakr, the case was networking along those standing outside. It was about 2.30pm and clearly the case wouldn't start again until the next day as it doesn't take much for causing an adjournment in the English legal system. Going back to the night of the murder, in court, Colby said that he and Abdul had been drinking in Weatherstone's pub in George Street, Hove. Abdul said that he wanted some cocaine. Colby wanted Valium. They both drove to Colby's, they both drove to Colby's partner's house to get some Valium. She threw a bag of Valium down to them. She remembers Abdul peeing outside while she refused them entry. They had phoned a dealer called Frank for some cocaine, which they called Sniff, and arranged to meet with Frank, a.k.a. London Dan, or as we know now, Daniel MacLeod. They arranged to meet at Hanover Court near Elm Grove, at the bottom of Lewis Road. When they arrived at Hanover Court, after being given directions by Frank, a dark Citroen pulled up, while Abdul was on the phone. Frank got out of the passenger side of the car, and said, All right, Cole, to Colby who was sitting in the car. Frank said to Abdul, have you got the money? As they walked away from the car. Abdul said, I need to have a word. Then Colby said he heard raised voices and Frank saying, do you think I'm fucking stupid? Are you trying to rob me? Colby said that Frank and Abdul started scuffling, then fighting, with Abdul blocking blows. Then Abdul fell to the floor with Frank standing over him. Colby got out the car and went towards them, but Frank warned him to stay away. Then Frank said to Colby, Thank fuck you were here, otherwise I would have killed him. Colby shielded Abdul and they made their way to the car. Frank said to Abdul, You fucking little dick, as he was leaving. Colby ran off going to his aunt's house in Woodingdean on the outskirts of Brighton. He called Frank and told him that he killed Abdul. Frank told him everything would be fine as long as he kept his mouth shut. Colby later received a call from somebody with a Scottish accent who gave reasons for the attack on Abdul, saying that Abdul had robbed him of two ounces of cocaine, and he said that Frank was a decent guy and not to say anything to anyone. When Colby went to go and see the police the next day, he was first detained as a suspect. Burns was being held in the cell next to Colby, and Colby said he recognised Burns' voice as the man with a Scottish accent that had phoned him the previous day. In a court recording, In court, a voice recording of Colby making a 999 call was played, giving his reasons for fleeing the scene. 
He said he was all over the place and in fear. He said he'd never seen anything like that before in his life. He was scared, shocked, petrified and panicking. This is very, very, very serious. I'm not going anywhere near Brighton, Corby had said. Corby had rung his partner just after the stabbing, crying and distressed, saying that Abdul went to go and grab a bag of sniff and was stabbed by Frank. In court, Colby gave evidence behind a screen. He told police a story that Abdul de Hayes had met Frank to buy a car. Colby had fled the scene after the stabbing, fearing he'd be arrested for driving while disqualified. It was the next morning when he realised he did not give a shit about the driving offences. When he heard Stephen Byrne's voice while in police custody, he started to panic. In when shown McLeod's face during an identity parade, Colby cried, asking for the procedure to stop. I don't want to see him, he said. In court, an expert witness explained the type of stabbing that Abdul suffered. It was called Turkish revenge, or bagging, or a Mars bar stabbing. These were revenge drug attacks designed not to kill but to humiliate the victim by stabbing the groin, the genitals and buttocks. One of the attentions is to try to get the victims to use a colostomy bag. McLeod had two people working for him in Brighton. Stephen Burns as his number two and Abdi Dahir who was his runner. The black Citroen car was a drug runabout car which was usually kept at Dahir's residence and usually driven by Burns when given permission to do so by McLeod. Abdul's stabbings were untreatable. They were in the abdomen, the kidney and the upper left leg, which cut the femoral vein and artery, causing massive bleeding. As anyone who's attended a first aid course knows, this means almost certain death. One stab wound was a defensive injury. The knife had passed through the full thickness of Abdul's hand. Abdul lost consciousness fairly quickly. At this point in the court case proceedings came to a stop as people in the public gallery were weeping uncontrollably and the usher and court uh, clerk went to comfort them and put boxes of tissues in the gallery. The judge warned those in the gallery that they had to control themselves during the case. The prosecution said that the case was drug related. Abdul phoned a man known as Frank to buy drugs. Frank had travelled down to Brighton from the address that he was staying in Crawley, a town about 30 miles north of Brighton. Frank came down to sell drugs. Also selling drugs in Brighton on behalf of McLeod was Stephen Burns, who told McLeod that he'd been robbed of drugs by Abdul de Gaze. This was never actually proved or confirmed, but it was generally accepted during the court case as being the reason that McLeod wanted to take revenge on Abdul. The attack was described as short, vicious, by the prosecution. But the defence argued that McLeod acted in self-defence, claimed that Abdul came at him with a knife, but he managed to disarm him and stabbed him in an awful and reasonable self-defence. McLeod's story was that Decay's had tried to rob him at knife point. He saw the knife as Decay's got out of the car and said, Give me what you got. McLeod said, Are you trying to rob me? Decay's approached with a knife, the blade about six or seven inches long. Everything happened so fast, said McLeod, who dropped the bag of cocaine, grabbed Decay's wrist as they struggled over the knife. McLeod said that it was self-preservation. He felt vulnerable and didn't want to get hurt and tried to make Abdul whack the knife into his own leg. The struggle lasted for about a minute when the knife was dropped and slid downhill from the pair. Both ran to get the knife, 
McLeod won the race and stabbed the K's in the thigh as he tried to fend him off. McLeod said that the delivery driver stayed in the car, as did uh, Decay's friend Colby Bodrick, because the struggle was so quick. In court, McLeod said that Decay's had lured him to the ambush, but, did not intend, but he did not intend to kill him. He said that Decay's was known as A1 in a gang of Muslim brothers who dealt drugs. He said that the gang stole drugs, dealt drugs and took drugs. He said he wouldn't want to fight with them as the Decay's gang when he found out that he'd killed Abdul Decay's he said he'd shat himself because he now had a beef with the wider family network and gang. McLeod told the judge that the rest of his life is fucked because of one night because of the Decay's network and that the ISIS lot would, were a brotherhood that would be out to get him. McLeod claimed that there was a £10,000 bounty on him and he'd already been attacked while in prison. McLeod accused the main witness, Colby Bodrick, of being a Muslim convert, as were other members of the gang. He said that Bodrick had tried to extort £10,000 from him, saying that he didn't know who he was messing with, and he was going to get the brothers, which I assume meant the gang who had converted to Islam, onto him if he didn't pay the money. The defending barrister for Stephen Burns said he had no knowledge of what had happened between Decay's and McLeod. And this was backed up by McLeod's testimony in court. The prosecution said this was nonsense. Burns must have known what had happened, and that was the reason why he switched cars that he was using that night to take McLeod back to Crawley, in case the car that they had arrived in had been spotted and reported to the police. And that was the reason that the mobile phone numbers had been changed the next day, on the Sunday morning, when new burner phones were purchased at the large Asda store at Brighton Marina. After this, McLeod, Burns and De Heer were busy letting their customers know that their new contact numbers. Burns was arrested on the Sunday afternoon. McLeod was arrested on the Wednesday, the 20th of February. Both gave no common interviews. Police searched the properties used by the gang. 8B Bristol Gate was a property used by the gang. Incidentally, on the road next to where Abdul De Hayes lived, a large quantity of drugs were found there, with a street value of up to £100,000, along with a blood-stained black T-shirt which DNA tests showed was Abdul's blood. The flat at the Bristol Gate was registered to MNC Security Services, of which McLeod was a sole director. McLeod's London address at Gypsy Lane was searched, and £24,000 in cash was found there. During the trial, Abu Bakr had refused to stand for the judge, entering and leaving the court whilst I was there. He made a number of comments on his Facebook account, calling the local newspaper, the Brighton Argus, the old backbiting, gloating cow. Abu Bakr asked why there are no witnesses to the stabbing. It suggested that the police and authorities were up to no good, as they were unable to discuss aspects of the case. He criticised Abdul's friend Colby Bodrick for being scared, and just about anybody involved in the case for his son's death. He suggests that people had come forward, but they had been shunned in one way or another, and the prosecution had been mocking him. Abu Bakr certainly seemed quite a controlling person. He questioned people in the public gallery as why they were there. There were a few law students. When he asked me, I replied I was just viewing justice being done, which is my right as a citizen.
He seemed quite friendly, but there were various other officials helping the family who were present. It seemed he was staying in Chichester as his presence in Bryant was not conducive to good order. I was subtly questioned by various women who had had an air of police about them. They were making general comments but secretly probing as to who I was. Abu Bakr made the point that he's not allowed in the main court, only in the public gallery, where it's difficult to hear, although he had been supplied with headphones to listen. He made the point that even suckers like the Argus reporter had access to the main court, but not him. He did not like the fact that barristers and the judges were wearing wigs. They whispered to each other, as if in a secret Shakespearean play, or an out-of-date secret society, as he put it. Abu Bakr is clearly incensed over aspects of the case, and information that is not permitted to be known by him during the trial. He seems to want to know the name of the defendant's partner, whose name was not disclosed in court. During the latest stages of the court case, Abu Bakr continued to publish observations on social media, sarcastically saying that McLeod was providing a service for providing drugs that was supplied by an Albanian drug cartel to people in the uh, popular tourist areas of Brighton. McLeod looked down on the likes of Abdul and his friends and that those people that came from council estates of Brighton. It's true that the drug gangs of the South Coast and elsewhere in the UK seem to be dominated by Albanian gangs who prefer to work with others and make a profit rather than get involved in turf wars. And it well may be that was a reason the McLeod was supplied by the Albanians. Abu Bakr protests that McLeod describes the Abdul's family as Daesh, ISIS fighters, not to be messed with, to try to activate prejudice in the jury. Abu Bakr seems to be convinced that McLeod and the Albanian drug gangs were working together, which may or may not be true. I would say that it's highly likely. Abdul was taken to accident emergency during January 2019 after an injury in a fight he alleges were Albanian drug dealers. Abu Bakr argues that this first attack, 10 days before the murder, was an attempt to weaken Abdul, although no evidence or reasons are given for this claim. Well, it's the first week in December and the trial was disrupted after the heating boiler broke down at Hove Crown Court and the building was deemed too cold to conduct trials as there has to be a minimum temperature of 16 degrees in the cells before they can accept prisoners and the temperature was 15 degrees. It was not stated as if, uh, as if uh, mobile radiators were considered to be bought but as said before it doesn't take much for the cause of an adjournment in the UK legal system. The trial was transferred the next day to Brighton Magistrates Courts which had difficulty in accommodating a murder trial as the courts are so much smaller. During the first week of December we had the closing speeches and the judges summing up. The prosecution argued that uh, in a short vicious attack the defendant had no defensive injuries and a large quantity of drugs had been discovered in his possession. McLeod had made no comment to the police at interview in order to wait to construct a story to fit in with the known facts of the case at a later date. It was suggested that uh, Degues was stabbed because of some alleged slight against McLeod.
The defence barrister, Edward Henry, put up a strong case saying that Abdul Dagais was desperate for cocaine and was prepared to rob someone for it, as he had done in the past. He was known for his violent behaviour and he was known to carry a knife and police discovered a machete in his bedroom after his death. The court had been shown punishment videos of Degues uh, bullying others, including his own gang members, and he was described as an arrogant, domineering bully with a quick, violent temper. Degues was an enforcer for his gang. The defence case implied that it would... Uh, why would a drug dealer kill a customer unless he was being attacked? Colby Bodrick... The main witness was branded as a deceitful, manipulative and cunning liar by the defence. Certainly the story he told in court was thought to be far from convincing. Bodrick said to have fled the scene and let Degas die. Colby is said to have lied about phone calls that he said he received and rather than being scared of MacLeod, he tried to extort £10,000 or cocaine to that value from him. Interestingly, that was the price that MacLeod claimed was put on his head while he was in prison. Broderick had led the police on almost all aspects of the uh, murder and adopted uh, a morose, aggressive and self-pitying attitude in trying to bargain with the police. Broderick had even tried to haggle his way out of being charged for driving while being banned and when the police refused he made threats saying that he knew where an officer lived. That was saying he tried to mislead the police. The boilers were repaired in time for the case to be returned to Hove Crown Court on Friday the 6th of December, in time for the judges summing up, after which the jury was asked to retire to consider its verdict. Waiting for the verdict to be announced, there were press articles, one arguing that Abdul traded on his brother's terrorist reputation to bolster his own notoriety, Photographs were published of him posing with a machete, calling himself A1. The caption on the photograph read rather pathetically, I got hitters that would kill your mum, rude boy. Boy spelt B-O-I. The machete was the same one found when police searched his room at his mother's house along with a book listing his drug dealing, or his drug debts. Another article was telling how Brighton is awash with drugs struggling to cope with an epidemic of homelessness and was thought to be a target of terrorism. The article claimed that people used to go out and have a couple of pints, but now they have a couple of pints and a couple of lines too. It's much more acceptable these days and you can't stereotype the users. It's everyone. Well, it's Wednesday the 11th of December 2019 today and the jury has been out for three and a half days now and they've been sent home for the day, partly because the court system seems to have got fed up waiting, and they've allocated the court for another case. It's been almost three weeks since I last posted a podcast, so I'm going to post this one now. The fact that the jury have been discussing for so long just suggests that they mean uh, this may mean another trial if they cannot reach a decision as the jury is split. Well, I've decided to go ahead with a podcast tonight, and I'll post another short podcast with the result and any other information that may come to light, as often does after a trial. I think there's a 50-50 chance that MacLeod will be found not guilty of murder. He didn't seem to stab in order to kill. Doesn't seem to have had a history of violence. Well, I can't find any evidence of a violent past. Degays was a small-time gangster and did not pose a great threat. 
more of an irritation. And why would McLeod try to kill a customer? Anyway, I will post after the decision is finally reached. Well, as I've said, it's the 11th of December today. I'll post another podcast before Christmas. And then I will post a ghost podcast for Christmas Eve, as per the Christmas tradition. Not that I believe in ghosts. It would be a paranormal story, thought to have been true at the time. And if you decide to listen, then you can make your own mind up. Anyhow, for the time being, I will say goodbye. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, goodbye.